Welcome to St. Patrick's Podcast with me, Martina Purdy. And me, Elaine Kelly. And Martina and I are so happy to have Belfast comedian Tim McGarry on our program today. He's just launched the St. Patrick's Way by the Coast, and thankfully, he's still <laughs> speaking to us. In fact, he's agreed to talk to us about his life's journey as a child of the Troubles, a lawyer, a comedian, and even a pilgrim guide. So, Tim, you are very welcome to the program. And the first question... Thank you for having me. You're welcome. First question, I have obvious question I have to ask you is, have you recovered from St. Patrick's Way by the Coast Walk? Well, I had an absolute ball, I have to say. I thought it was absolutely lovely. I wasn't sure what to expect, you know. I mean, I, I, I like a wee dander now and again, but it, the, the weather was superb. The company was great. There were about a dozen of us on it, um, and it was a very nice, gentle walk with a wee nice break in the middle of it. I did. I didn't know that part of the country at all. I didn't know Ballyhornan. Uh, the the scenery was stunning. Uh, the company was excellent. I have to say, I thoroughly recommend it to anybody. Oh well, that's great to hear because um, we we were saying that if ever we get called back to the convent, <laughs> we know that St Patrick's Way is going to be safe in your hands, Tim, because you're an expert guy <laughs> looking after everyone. <laughs> Well, I have, to say, I have to say, Tim, I was at the front and Martina was at the back with you. And when I looked behind, I could see you helping people over stiles, keeping that them right. Me. And <laughs> I and ha- Martina, and I thought to myself, thank God Tim McGarry's on this walk. We'll be finished without him. <laughs> it's because well, of uh, thank you for Thank you for inviting me to be one of the youngest people on it as well. It's always <laughs> nice to be young for a change, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there were a couple of people who had some some issues, but they were great. You know, having said that, you know, there were there were people, one person with a stick or whatever. Um, they did the whole thing. It was great, and they everybody had a ball. I think everybody really, really enjoyed it. Yes. I'm sure the feedback was excellent. It was, but it was your height, I think, that saved us because you were able to get height in your muscle tone. rocks, and, and we have forgiven you. What was it he called us in his newsletter, Colin Elaine? <laughs> <laughs> of our solicitor little and short <laughs> little and short yes. but he, he has justification isn't that right Tim <laughs> depending on the absolutely country. yeah <laughs> well, well I'm six foot four everybody's short to me don't take it the wrong way <laughs> well we wanted to uh, I guess it's hard hard to know where to start with you but um you're just uh you're uh, you've had a very busy day you've been interviewing Colin Murray that seems to be yeah, part I- of your new projects yeah, well, I've, I've, I've lots on at the minute. I've had a bizarrely good lockdown. We've had Give My Head Peace episodes and we do a show, Perfectly Adulterous Sketch Show. But we've just invented a new show called Criminal Records where people come on and they talk about, not their, it's Desert Island Discs in reverse. So instead of talking <laughs> about music that you love, you talk about the worst music in your life, the songs you absolutely hate, the worst gig you were ever at, the song you'd like played at your funeral, the songs that uh, you think everybody else hates but you actually love, the worst lyrics. And uh, it's been really, really good. I've just did two interviews today. I did one with Carl Frampton, the boxer, and one with Colin Murray, the presenter. So that's going out in about six weeks. I'm doing six episodes of that. So, yeah, it's a lovely wee show. Nice wee gig. Well, I have to say, Tim, listening to that, um, our producer Damien's killing himself, and there, that is a very good reason. Listen to you, why you are just comedy gold. I think so. comedy gold. <laughs> I think Damien would like our jingle on his uh, on the program for the songs he. By hates. the way, that's, I was just going to say that's a class intro music. That, I, think, I, think, I thought that is now that that's building me up too much. To be honest with you, oh, well, we stole that jingle from our St. Patrick's show. Isn't that right. they, they give us permission. They, they give us permission, permission after we took it to you. And so, uh, you know, this is, uh, well, let's talk about uh, your, your, your role as a comedian because, you know, Elaine and I were saying that we knew you kind of, uh, Elaine was a lawyer, you were a lawyer, and I knew you from the BBC, and yet you seem to be called away from the, from the law to comedy. So was it a call within a call, or was the legal work something you did to kind of 
as a practical means of support? No, it was slightly the other way around. I, I'm in a gang with two other people, Damon Quinn and Michael McDowell, who I met at Queen's University back in 1982. And Damon started writing comedy plays at school, and he wrote a few plays and uh, wrote me and a few other people in to do them at Queen's University. Um, but we were all studying to be law. We were studied law together. We all went off and were lawyers for a time. I was a proper lawyer, a proper solicitor for <laughs> eight years, I think. Um, but the comedy was on the side, and it was kind of developing it as it grew from doing charity shows to getting wee bits and pieces on radio to having 40 people coming to see our show. Suddenly we were getting 200 people coming to see the show. And we thought, well, let's let's uh, make a break. Let's see if we can do this full time. Um, and I actually got, we've actually just celebrated 25 years, our silver anniversary of going full time as full time comedians on the 1st of April, 1996. We went full time and remarkably we've, we've got away with it for quarter of a century, which is, uh, says quite a lot, you know, <laughs> longevity, there's something to be said for it. Yes, it's quite amazing. Actually, on the 1st of April 1996, I was starting as a BBC political correspondent, and I look back and think, well, well I, th- I thought the date was funny at the time, now I know why, but it's, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you, your comedy, you make it look easy, but there's a lot of uh, discipline and, and hard work that goes into it. Oh, absolutely. The comedy is quite hard. The hardest bit is writing. Performing, I love. I love performing. Uh, we do a stage show every year of Give My Head Peace, and we go all around the country. And once that show is up and running, uh, it's a two-hour show. It, it, it's a joy to do. And I, I do a bit of stand-up in the middle of it. I do about 25 minutes of stand-up, and we have silly sketches all around it. And it's an absolute joy to do. But the writing is the hard bit, and the writing is the bit where Damon, Michael, and myself sit in an attic, and it literally is an attic in our agent's office, and David Hull promotion. He's our agent, and we sit there and we twiddle our thumbs and try and think of something funny, and that is the hard bit. I mean, it, there's a lot of um, nonsense around it as well, getting commissions off the BBC and getting work off the BBC. But comedy itself, I mean, it, it is quite a serious business. Most comedians you meet are actually quite serious people because it is they're completely different from the public persona. Uh, but the, the ability to make people laugh is is something that is you know we I regard it as. as really, really precious to me. It's something, you know, that brings immense joy and it brings joy to people. I get stopped in the street by people who go, thank you very much for what you did. Thank you for your work. And I go, thank you. I mean, I'm having a ball myself. I'm having a laugh. (laughs) But it is, you know, they they talk about the gift of laughter. And, you know, I I, I don't want to be too pompous about it, but um, it is, it's not, it's not, you know, it's my talent. I have a bit of talent uh, and I I think I've I've done all right. And I've got the, the two partners, myself, and Damon and Michael, and we we are support each other. So we 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 you know are good judges of our stuff. You know, if I write a joke and the other two guys don't like it, it's probably not funny, so it doesn't go in. Uh, if two of us like it, it goes in. We <laughs> self-edit each other. We're our, we're our worst critics. We're more critical of ourselves than anybody else is. Uh, but we also, you know, we, we've been pretty successful, and that's partly accident, but it's also hard graft as well. It, it is it isn't an easy business to make money as a full-time comedian. Well, Tim, that's a fair point because I remember watching you whenever um, you were in the, obviously in the Hole in the Wall gang and whenever you were put on your shows, I mean, you made us laugh about the troubles, you know, and you said it in a brilliant way. It was really, really intelligent comedy. So I, I would be one of those people who would stop you in the street and say thanks because you know yourself, I mean, um, sort of like the 90s were, you know, bad still during the troubles, even though we got, you know, the Good Friday Agreement, but we have all the other elements, unfortunately, of our conflict as well, which still remain with us. But I have to say, you gave me a laugh and 
I used to laugh at it. We were watching you on tonight, today on the Blame Game and watched some of the storming stuff that you did. Really outstanding stuff. Yeah, we watched the TEDx. Well, thank, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I, um, uh, we, we started sort of the mid to late 80s and there hadn't been any comedy in Northern Ireland since about the early 70s when Jimmy Young was a, the famous comedian in the group theatre and his own TV show in the early 70s. But from then until the late 80s, any comedians from here immediately went across the border Nobody mentioned the troubles. Nobody mentioned the war, as it were. And nobody talked about what was happening outside their front door. So when ourselves and the likes of Paddy Keelty started, there was a huge sense of relief, you know, I think, among audiences. is about finally, you know, you're talking about the IRA, you're talking about Ian Paisley, you're talking about our politicians, you're talking about what we all, you know, we're all talking about down the pub. And I think there was that, there was that sense as well. And then there was the edge as well of having a go at paramilitaries, having a go at politicians that, but in a way that made you laugh. And if you're laughing, it's very hard to be angry and laugh at the same time. You know, so you get away with an awful lot more when you're when you're you're telling jokes. You can be satirical and you can say things that you cannot say in a normal conversation or in a normal debate. You can say outrageous things, you can be extreme, you can exaggerate stuff and you can get away with it. If people are laughing, you know you're winning. <laughs> yeah, and I think the psychologist would tell you it's very healing. Hmm. Oh, I think, I mean, the laughter is the best medicine and all that. It's a, it's a bit overplayed, but, you yeah, know, absolutely. I mean, laughter is, laughter is good for you. Uh, it's always good to laugh. And funny, we, we know when we're when we're writing ourselves, when we write jokes and we're killing ourselves laughing. Uh, but sometimes, you know, it is a serious business and I'll write a joke and go, oh, yeah, that's a very, very good joke. That will make people laugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then go on to the next one. And then sometimes we'll just come out with a line or somebody will come out with a line and the three of us are just killing ourselves laughing. And it is, it is a, it's a release, obviously, of a sense, you know, under the recent endorphins or whatever it is. But, you know, it makes you feel good. You know, as I say, it's hard to be anger and bitter and hard to be cruel when you're having a laugh. Yeah, I don't think Hitler had much of a sense of humor. <laughs> exactly. There, there, there are no comedy clubs in North Korea, put it like that. You know? <laughs> but your father had an influence. They're all underground. <laughs> your father had an influence on your comedy because you talked about him, I think, in the newsletter, uh, the Belfast Telegraph, rather, interview that we read, and, and you talked about his dry wit, but also the fact that he said, you know, you have to look at the sense of ridiculousness of taking yourself too seriously. Yeah. Yeah, no, he always said that the trouble with Northern Ireland was we all take ourselves too seriously. And the most important thing was to have a sense of ridiculousness. And he had a very dry, sort of sarcastic sense of humour. He was a surgeon in the Matter Hospital in Belfast for many, during the dark days of the Troubles. And he was, you know, he was literally on the front line because the Matter Hospital was in North Belfast and the Crumlin Road there. And, you know, North Belfast uh, shootings kept him busy. Um, and he very, very rarely talked about his work. The only time I, I saw him really, really angry and emotional about something was the, the day Bobby Sands died. There were a milkman and a son called Kevin, or just, sorry, Desmond and Eric Gaining, who were passing by the new lodge after uh, Bobby Sands died. And they didn't realise the news and were met at five o'clock in the morning by a mob of 500 people who bricked them. And the, the two of them were, were killed in a horrible incident. And my father operated on one of them, tried to save them. And they think the child died first and they, the father survived for a couple of days. And my dad never, never talked about his work, but I remember him saying that the, the, the father wasn't going to do it. And he was literally shaking. You know, it was the only time he'd seen, well, not the only time he'd seen lots of horrible things, but there was something that really, really affected him. And it kind of affected me as well, because that's 1981. I'm a teenager. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, 
was never really, we were never really a Republican family or anything like that. But I, I remember thinking, right, well, you know, forget all the glory of dying for Ireland or whatever, or killing for Ireland. You know, this isn't for me. You know, I'm not. A, I, I, so I took a very strong anti-violence line from an early age, and I think, of, I think it comes from my father, and I think that comes from our, in our comedy as well. I mean, our, our comedy is basically we don't lecture to people, we don't pre- preach, but we, we basically the message is, you know, everybody calm down. We can have a laugh about this, and you know, violence and sectarianism is, you know, not the way to go. Yes, Tim, and that's an important point you've raised. That comes through in your comedy because um, given the life that you had led as well and the troubles and the story you've just told us, I think you were trying to get a message across to people, you know, to sort of try and get a look for the fun, look for the joy. And as you say, an anti-violence message, come away from all this. Like Jimmy Young, my mom loved Jimmy Young and he would always say at the end, yeah. stop your fighting. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that, that's a bit unsubtle, you know, but we, we didn't want to do that. We wanted people that, you know, because you can't preach to people because nobody nobody likes to be preached at and they, they you know, they, they go, uh, we, we're, somebody described satire once as uh, comedy with a moral purpose, uh, which is a great description, but it has to be comedy first. It has to be funny first. And if you take away something from the comedy, that's fine. I mean, some people said we were, when we created Uncle Andy and Dad that we were reinforcing sectarian stereotypes and all that. And to an extent we were, but we were also mocking those sectarian stereotypes. We were undermining those sectarian stereotypes. We were very clearly saying, you know, that the paramilitaries were not only immoral, but they were idiots as well and they weren't doing their cause any good. And those sort of things, I, you know, I'm not saying, you know, that I deserve a Nobel Peace Prize, but if anybody's writing to the Nobel Prize, I will accept them. But I think we were part, I think we were part of, 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 of a movement of people going, you know, this isn't going anywhere. There's bound to be a better way of, of dealing with ourselves rather than shooting each other. And I think that message, you know, came from the, the bottom up. Yeah. And if I was a tiny, tiny part of that, then, then fine. Well, we'd definitely give you a prize. But what, what struck me <laughs> what you were saying is the generation gap that occurred from Jimmy Young to, to yourselves. Yeah. Why do you, is it the, was it the, just the, the trauma of the, the violence that stopped people from talking about it? Or was it the media being... It, it was a bit of both. It was, it was the practicality as well, literally. Oh, there were no theatres. <laughs> there was nowhere to perform. I mean, uh, it was, uh, Roy Walker, the great comedian, um, who, who uh, said before the Troubles, he worked in the cabaret clubs in Belfast, and said there was a massive scene in Belfast, a massive Friday night, Saturday night scene, bars, cabaret clubs. People came from Dublin to Belfast to be entertained. And the Troubles destroyed all that, and he very quick, he was in a mixed marriage, and they, I think he was attacked, or his shop was attacked, and he left to go to England. Didn't look back, you know, but there was, there was no outlet, really, for comedy. BBC and UTV, well, UTV are never going to make any comedy programmes. BBC kind of did the odd radio bit with a great guy called Charlie Warmington who, who tried to keep a flame of satire alive. But there was literally no no other outlets until the likes of ourselves came along. And I think by the time we were personal on the scene, so late 80s uh, or mid to late 80s, there was a war weariness. There was a feeling that, you know, you know, let's let's have a go at the politicians rather than just having to see them on the news. Let's make fun of them, you know, and I think we tapped into that. And also, Tim, you, you and your family had a serious threat to your life um, during the Troubles in North Belfast and Fort William. Would you be okay to yeah. talk about that for a bit? Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. We, our house was set on fire on the 13th of February 1981 in a malicious attack that we believe in the police and everybody else believes was a malicious sectarian attack. There was, there'd been a spate of fires in, in the area, we, we think, from loyalists who set for the attack the convent uh, on Fort William Park. They attacked the church on Fort William Park. They set fire to a bus 
uh, outside the church and they, they set fire to our house over a period of a week or so. But we, I was in the house with my mother and father and three other uh, two sisters and a, and a brother. And it was a malicious attack. They, they, they didn't steal anything. They too far. They cut telephone wires. Uh, and they deliberately set two or three fires and then left the building. And my father was very, very lucky. He woke at two o'clock in the morning to the sound of broken glass as a window shattered with the heat. Uh, and we were saved by a cousin of mine who happened to be um, out too late with her boyfriend and walked home to her to our house, which was opposite our house, and saw flames coming from our house and phoned the fire brigade. Because my father, the, the phone line had been cut off, so we couldn't phone anybody. And I woke up to dense, dense, dense smoke, and there's no feeling like it. The feeling of panic and fear is unbelievable. But tell you what, though, you really appreciate the fire brigade when your head is stuck out of the second floor window of a building, and these boys turn up, and within 30 seconds, you're down a ladder. But it, it was a traumatic time. My sister, we, we couldn't get to my sister because the smoke was so dense, and she collapsed. She was at the top of the house, and she was saved by the, the fire service. And I'll tell you what, you, you really... Really, really appreciate the work those people do. You know that the big help. Well, to have to tell you, Tim, that's really, really horrendous. And I just, you know, I don't think the public really knew that about you. I mean, and you. Well, and it, it happened. It happened bizarrely. It, it, the, the night it happened, it was the same night as a Stardust disaster in Dublin. Thirteenth of us when forty-eight people were killed in the fire in the Stardust nightclub. So I woke up in the Matter Hospital, all covered in black. Your head to toe in black for weeks after. Uh, and the, uh, the big news was the Stardust disaster. And I think we literally got a paragraph on page five of the, the Belfast Telegraph. You know, family because nobody died. My father had threw himself out a window and broke his ankle uh, trying to save us. Uh, and, and and luckily the fire brigade then turned up. But it was, I mean, it's traumatic. My sister still to this day, you know, locks every door at night and gets the fire alarm on and makes sure that everything's locked and bolted and child's are escape route planned. You know, it was a very traumatic time. But I, you know, I, at the same time, I was, 16, I was age 16, so I was quite, you know, resilient. And you bounce back after these things and you just kind of take them in your stride. Yeah, I mean, I remember Stardust very well um, at Tim, but I obviously didn't appreciate uh, what had happened to your own family. But I would say, you know, listening to that and your your own life, I mean, you, you are eminently qualified to talk about the troubles without a doubt. Comedy or not. Well, yeah, you always have to see the funny side. To tell you the funny side of that particular one, they, 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 they reckon it was a loyalist group who were behind it because they set fire to the uh, minibus at the church and then they painted a slogan on the, on the pathway up to the church to tell people who they were. And they said they were the Protestant Loyalist Volunteer Defence Force or something. But they spelled Protestant with a D. And I said, oh, for God's sake. Have I, somebody's tried to kill me and I can't even spell? Come on, people. Uh, well, <laughs> but you see, this is this is very Northern Irish, you know. The, the, the trauma is there's a, somebody finds humour in the darkness. And I kind of <laughs> wonder, would you be a comedian if you were raised in Glasgow or London? Or would you be a comedian telling different jokes? Uh, I, Glasgow, possibly. Uh, I think <laughs> where our comedy comes from is, however, is, is from the peculiar situation here. I don't think I would be. I, if I was in London, probably not. I think I'd probably be, I'd be a wealthy lawyer now. <laughs> um, Very rich. Uh, yeah, I, in Parliament. Or a retired perhaps. lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny you say Glasgow. Glasgow, every Northern Irish comedian, I, mean, I, I actually haven't done that gig in Glasgow, but every Northern Irish comedian says the best gig in the world is the Stand Comedy Club in Glasgow because they get us. They have our same sense of humour and they get us and we get them. Um, but I think you're right. Part of our humour comes uh, specifically Northern Ireland. I mean, we, we've, we've done shows for Radio 4 and Radio 2, but very rarely do we stray even across the border, to be honest with you. You know, we've, we've developed here in this society in Northern Ireland very differently from the UK. 
but also very differently from the south of Ireland. You know, and they, they, you know, the further south you go, people have no idea who I am. And you know, I, I don't mean that in, a, in a, you know an arrogant way. I mean, they just you know, people are less interested in the north the further south you go. And they, a lot of people in the south saw give me head piece and went, "What is this? Why are these people shouting at each other about religion? Where's the jokes in this?" You know. Uh, but I think so. Our, our humour is very peculiar to hear. Peculiar to us is peculiar to our situation and our politics. And, and yet you described your childhood as idyllic. And Elaine's looking at me now because she was a child of the Troubles, whereas I got carried out to Canada. But Against her will. <laughs> I'm, and I'm trying to work out the, the idyllic childhood here. So you tell me, because Elaine said she had a good childhood. Oh, I had a great childhood. Lodge. But Tim, you go first. <laughs> I, 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 well, I, I'm very, very uh, happy, loving parents. I had a big family. I had lots of mates. Uh, I enjoyed my school days uh, up to a point. No, I enjoy, enjoyed my school days. Uh, I never felt under any threat from anybody. You know, there were there were the odd incident uh, and the troubles. But the, you know, certainly when you were young, growing up, it was kind of background noise rather than completely in your face. Even even the trauma of 1981 and the, you know it, 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 the fire, we kind of forgot about it a few years later. Some you know. It's kind of just oh yeah that happened because so much other things were happening. But I, I, I you know I, I thank my parents. You know I was well br- brought up and I had a lovely loving big family. Christmases in our house were great crack. You know um, everybody all the presents at Christmas Eve. You know I, I have nothing but fond memories of my family and we still get on together. We, we, there's six of us, six children, uh, and we still get on very well. Um, and you know because we don't see each other that much, which is probably why. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, a great American comedian, George Burns, that happiness is having a large, close-knit family in another city. Well, there, there, there is that saying, what is it, good fences make good neighbours? Yeah, I remember George <laughs> yeah, Burns. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, well, I was just going to interject there. Um, just way out of probably where we are in the um, in the uh, discussion, but I have to say one of the best things I remember on TV was you and Noel Thompson in the taxi. After hearts uh, and minds, and yeah. I lament the fact that that was all pulled. We all really enjoy yeah. sitting and watching that. I liked hearts and minds. Noel Thompson was great, very dense, very dense. But when it came to you, she means that in a good way. It means that in a good way. But when it came to you in the taxi, I loved that. I loved that, and I'm so sorry yeah. it was pulled. One of the best things on TV. I know. I oh, know. I love it. It, it, it's, it's great discipline for me because I had to write that every <laughs> Wednesday night, Thursday morning, and you force yourself to sit down and write jokes. But I did that for about fifteen years. But people used to tell me that they watched the program for the last thirty seconds because I summarised yeah. the week's news in literally six guys in thirty seconds. You know, so yeah. uh, no, I, I, I know it was lovely, and it was a lovely show to work on. Mary Kelly, the producer, was great, and lovely Ian Knox and Ian Knox's cartoons. But you know, things move on, and you know, one lose things. Uh, yeah, I always hung on for the joke, but uh, I think <laughs> of all the characters, I think da, da you say the day doesn't go by when you're not, uh, someone doesn't shout da at you. In fact, when you were getting your picture taken with us in our glass, someone shouted da. And uh, is that kind of the character that you are most fond of or or is it, because well, that would be kind of your alter ego, but I'm trying to work out how you're like him. <laughs> oh, not at all, not at all. No, I, 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 I mostly get on with my wife for a start. Um, no, I... Uh, but I haven't said that. I mean, it's one of those things. It's, it'll be on my head. If I'm the first Irish man in space, it'll be second under, you know, Da from Give My Head. Peace goes from space, you know. Uh, and it's lo- But it's lovely as well. You know, we, we, we stumbled across these characters, Ma, Da and Uncle Andy, but they resonate with the public. You know, we've been doing that for over 20 years and we still get huge audiences. Olivia Nash, who plays my wife, is, uh, is from Larne. She plays Ma, a lovely, lovely woman. You know, she's a lot older than us, but every day she says she goes out 
marriage is recognised and people go, that husband of yours, he's terrible to you. You know, so people regard it as real. We got a very nice compliment from a producer who, years ago when we, we would give him a headpiece was at its height. And he said, the thing about giving a headpiece was is they're larger than life characters. Of course they are. They're caricatures. But he said there's a truth to them. There's yeah. an honesty to them. They are based on real people. They're based on real attitudes. They're based on a reality. And there is a truthfulness to them. You know, we're not pretending, you know, that we're, we're somewhere else. So we're, they're, they're, you know, we, we, we write, you know, stuff that is honest. And, and I think that that's, that comes across with, with people. I think that's right. Because when I used to watch the episodes, um, particularly when they were on, you know, on regularly on the TV, I used to kill myself because I said, God, flip, that's like our house. Do you know that's the way things are here? And, and you could resonate with them. And people did. They laughed. And do you know what it is? Tim, I remember, they laughed loudly. It was like a belly laugh. It wasn't like, oh, just, oh, that's funny. People killed themselves, yeah. do you know? And they still do. Yeah. And now he's doing no, reality TV, the blame game. We think that uh, you stole that from us because whenever there's a problem, Elaine, Elaine says, I blame her. And uh, we, so we have a blame game stole here. Stole our at, idea. 14-year-old uh, Corey all the time. <laughs> but the blame game has been incredibly successful. So many seasons. I think it's 18. 18, 18, 18 series. Yeah, yeah. 18. No, it's good. You've, you've known more than I do, to be honest with you. I, I got, I was, I was very upset one year. I got sacked. They, they sacked me out of it for no apparent reason. They just wanted to change things about, and they, uh, they rotated some, some uh, guest hosts. And I was genuinely upset because it's one of the nicest gigs in the world to do because I, uh, I well, I, I write my script and my jokes and stuff, but I, I'm the link man and the connecting man. So I have a producer in my ear saying, move Colin along and get Neil in and blah, blah, blah. And don't forget to go to the next topic. But it's basically, I, I spend an hour sitting listening to four great comedians and, you know, there's no better gig in the world. Uh, and it's a lovely, lovely show. It just works really well. The, you know, we, we've, when, we, when we're allowed audiences, you know, we put it with, we're allowed 300 seats, I think, in the BBC. And we, we at one stage, we'd be getting 10,000 people applying for every single show, you know, to be in the audience. And that's, you know, that's just that. And it has that immediacy. We record that on a Thursday night and it goes out on a Friday night. So, you know, it's literally the day before. And, uh, you know, it's bang up to date as far as we can possibly make it. And it's just a joy to do. And, you know, I, I, one of my proudest things is that I, I have great variety in my job, which is superb. You know, we started off, you know, with Give My Head Peace, but I do radio stuff. I do a history show. You know, I'm doing this other chat show now about bad records. I've got, you know, they, uh, we've got a sketch show, so no two days are the same. There's always something else happening, you know, which is which is great. It keeps you going, yeah. even at my old age, you know. Oh, your, it's your birthday tomorrow. Happy birthday. Oh, happy it is birthday. my birthday tomorrow. And 57. It's better than being 75 and dyslexic, Tim. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, Tim, you know, whenever you were with us on the coastal walk, I was not over a week ago, mm -hmm. just over a week ago. Well, I thought Tim's got fitter and stronger because you were lifting people over this, lifting people over that. So it, ha it hasn't reduced your stamina or ability at all. Well, now we can introduce the F word because we're talking about the way again. F for, <laughs> F for faith. What about your faith? faith? Faith, because we read there that you're officially a humanist and uh, we're praying that you lose faith in your humanism. And go back to being a but I, I, said, yeah. I said, but listen, Tim, before you interject, I said to Martin, even though Tim is a humanism, okay, I understand humanism, but I would say Tim is one of the best um, non-practicing actual Catholics I know. Me too. You are, you are, because I saw your humanity in your saintlyhood when you were on that coastal walk with us and the way you were helping people. Well, and you were the star, yet you just put, you, well, you, you right. just put yourself down. Star, no, you weren't. Tim was the star and you just total humility and self selflessness. And I thought, my God, that man's a better Christian than I am. I know. I thought that too. <laughs> 
Is that not normal and human? Is that not? I'm not afraid to talk about it. I am, I am a patron of the Northern Ireland Humanists, and I became an atheist when I was about 14, I think, uh, just around the time of confirmation. And I just thought, because I was quite devout up to before then, I even, you know, at one stage I considered someone a Christian brother, because I was taught by the Christian brothers in Park Lodge, and there was a Christian brother, Brother Holian, who was an absolutely lovely, lovely man. And, you know, my mother was very, very religious. And I genuinely considered becoming a, 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 a Christian brother at a very early stage. But, you know, I, I'm afraid I'm, I'm a, a natural sceptic and I just go, well... You know, you go back to the go back to the creed. You know, I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. And I go, I'm not sure there is a God who made heaven and earth. I'm not sure the universe uh, was made by anybody. I'm not sure how it came about. But the universe behaves exactly as it would if there was no God, and humans behave exactly as they would if there was no God. Uh, so I believe that uh, there is. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an I genuinely think I'm an atheist rather than an agnostic. I think the chances of there being a God are virtually zero. Uh, I think also that the people who, who Claim a god that the burden of proof is on them, you know. And they say, "Well, how could you not be an atheist? The burden of proof's on you. You, you prove to me that there is a god. You, you just have to open your you. eyes. You just have to open your eyes to see the beauty all around you. You say only God could have made yeah, this that, beauty. But on a serious note, well, no, well, well. Like, yeah, but that, that beauty came about because of, you know, uh, evolution and uh, that beauty changes and we're capable of destroying it through our own stupidity and our, our, our lack of humanity. And I, I'm slightly, you know, do you know what? I, I, I'm not embarrassed about talking about that. My mother was very, very devout and I sometimes feel because, I, and I love my mother, but she, was, she had a simple faith and I don't mean that in a patronising way, but she was genuinely, you know, 100% Catholic, but daily communicant. Uh, the priest came to our house and the tea and the car with, with the best china came out and all of that. Uh, I, I, I sometimes feel like I, I'm betraying her. Uh, I'm betraying her memory, but I, I just, I just don't buy it. I'm sorry, and I know that sounds hard to some people, but I, I just, I don't buy it. You know, and I don't buy any religion. And I think, you know, if if, if, if you two were, you two are, were, were nuns. If you were in India, you'd be Hindus. If you're in Pakistan, you'd be Muslims. You know, what makes it, what makes you Catholic? It's your upbringing. It's your your socialization. It's it's other things rather than um, the existence of a god. Well, I mean, I think that I actually eventually chose the Catholicism because ultimately you have to make a decision. I mean, you can have your upbringing, but, you know, I, I'm too tired to talk about causality and argue with you about God. But what I would say is, I'll ask you one question before we move on. Lane hits me <laughs> over the head. Do you believe in love? Yes. Well, God is love. So thank you very much, Tim. Moving we'll on, moving on. We'll have to move on. Right? So, Tim, no, sorry, so we, we, yeah. do, we do hear you. And um, obviously, you know, but I have to say, and I have to say, um, in your humanism, I find you, uh, I find you like good Catholic. a really good Catholic, yeah, a very decent man. Really sincerely. So moving on. Not that I was surprised. No, 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 I mean, we were talking earlier about you know the the, the lesson. You said it was it was uh, Saint Paul, but be kind. You know that's that's humanism. That's I mean it's Christianity as well. I mean there are bits of Christianity that you absolutely have to admire. But um, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just I'm just a natural skeptic. And just to go back then, but you you do. We, I have seen you talk about. Um, I want to say oh, something well, for Martina. Tim, we love you just the way you are. 
And God loves you just the way you are. <laughs> and uh, I, I love you just the way you are. I'm still praying. But uh, I would say you, you had a Catholic education, and I, I know you have talked about integrated education, but to go back to your time at St. Malachy's College, because there's a link between the founder of St. Malachy's College, Bishop William Crawley, and uh, Dan Patrick. Yeah. So he came from Dan Patrick. But your, your time at St. Malachy's College was marked by... Um, you had a similar experience to uh, our first guest, Eamon Holmes, who who said that um, uh, then Canon Patrick Walsh was a bit of a stickler for timekeeping, and he got detention even though his bus was hijacked. But you had <laughs> a similar experience um, of, of this particular Patrick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was a, he was a bit of a stickler for brown shoes. He hated brown shoes for some reason. Uh, yeah, and your tie had to be your tie had to be done up properly, and your top button had to be done. Uh, yeah, no, but, but again, to, to go back to the. The, uh, the Bobby Sands, the day Bobby Sands died, we were at school and Bishop uh, uh, Cannon Walsh walked us past the riot at the top of the new lodge after school. There was no excuse for not coming to school, you know, and to be fair, you know, that, that was a good thing, you know, I, I think my parents would agree with that, go to school all the time. I, I only went to St. Malachy's. My, my brother, uh, Philip, who's uh, considerably older than me, though people think he's mistaken for my twin, which is quite distressing, he, he was... <laughs> He, he was a Glen Road man. He was the Christian Brothers up the Glen Road, but the troubles got so bad that my mother and father found it hostile getting back from West Belfast. So that's why I was to Malachy's. I went to the Christian Brothers Park Lodge and then down to St Malachy's. But, you know, I, my sons have gone there. It's a great school. I don't I don't diss it at all. Um, and I had a, a, you know, I had a, had a happy experience. Of course, they were, they're, they're, you know, Paddy Walsh was a, was a bit of a stickler, but there's bad teachers in every single school. I'm not saying he was a bad person or anything, but there, there are bad teachers in every single school. There are sticklers in every single school. So I don't look back on my on my education with any bitterness at all. I, I look back on my education and thank them for the for the uh, excellent grounding I got. I've got an A level in Latin, which I'm very proud of. Unfortunately, Somalis doesn't even do Latin anymore, which I think should be made compulsory because I love Latin. Um, and I, you know, I you know, you could also argue that Somalis made me the skeptic I am. But they, they produced a lot of very talented people in their own way. Do you know much about St. Patrick? You would have learned a lot about him in school. Uh, yeah, a wee bit in school. Uh, I did a bit of research. I did a show called Tim McGarry's Irish History Lesson uh, about. Uh, so I ended up doing a lot of research on Irish history, uh, mainly to take the hand out of it. But yes, there's a bit of dispute, isn't there? About I think the, the video called the Maywin Socket, which I think is accepted <laughs> that he was possibly <laughs> Welsh. Isn't that right? The Maywin Socket. Oh, I call <laughs> him Socket. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my one suck it. No, come on, my one suck it. <laughs> uh, but I, I've heard, I, I did a show with about Ulster Scots with a guy called uh, oh, Thompson, Mark Thompson, lovely fellow. And he claims that Patrick was probably Scottish, and he claims there's a Scottish, there's all sorts of Scottish traditions about uh, coming to Port Patrick and uh, up in uh, Donegadee and stuff. Uh, there are all sorts of, uh, I mean, his roots aren't entirely clear, are they? No, but uh, it was, some people think possibly Welsh, uh, Roman Britain, so it could be closer to Wales. But um, but on a broader sense, you know, what does St. Patrick mean to you in terms of, I know you're not, you're a humanist, but in terms of the heritage or um, was do you have particular memories of St. Patrick's Day or... You don't want to press him in the form of him. Yeah, have you blocked him out? <laughs> <laughs> no, 
you know, Gloria St. Patrick, dear saint of our island, you know, and you remember uh, that always had a mass on St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's obviously very, very significant for Irish people. Um, and uh, I suppose a lot of people don't really know that the true facts of him. We know he was kidnapped um, and taken over here. But he, when he came back to convert Ireland, was he not a bishop at that stage? Am I, am I yes, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. Even though they kind of think he, he was just, you know, a guy with a, with a crook and um, driving out snakes, which never were here in the first place. But uh, I mean, there's so much mythology around him. But I think he's still, you know, he's regarded as one of the the key saints, isn't he, of, of Ireland? Certainly, well, certainly the saint of Ireland. And. Uh- you talking there about him banishing snakes, which we think is a metaphor for the pagans, although we think the pagans are back. We know a lot of <laughs> baptized Christian pagans these days. Um, what would you banish from Ireland in the spirit of St. Patrick? Oh, that's a good question. What would I banish from Ireland? Uh, I would banish uh, sectarianism. <laughs> I would banish the feeling that you're, you know, that my religion is better than your religion uh, and that I, you don't like people because of the, the nature of their religion. I suppose that's related to, to racism as well. I think it's, it's kind of one of those things you think, how could people even possibly judge people people on the basis of the colour of their skin or their religious belief. I mean, part of the things I, 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 I like about being a humanist and a secularist is, if you're a secularist, I, I think the, 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 the secular state will, will guarantees the most religious freedom of anybody because a secular state says, we don't care, but you go off and enjoy your God, pray to your God, worship your God. You can proselytise all you want as well. Do what you want. We judge, do not judge you. Uh, and I think that thing about not judging people, I mean, Martin Luther King's great statement, you know, you, you judge a person on the quality of the, the content of their character rather than the colour of their skin. I mean, that applies to all sorts of the isms and racism, sexism, and whatever. And I think if I had a chance, I would banish racism and, and sectarianism. That's okay. a good answer. Well, what I want, did want to ask you, Tim, we're, we're kind of coming close to the end of our program, but I remember when we were on the Coastal Walk with you, you spoke a lot about your mom, Betty. And I just yeah. I just wanted to ask you, um, if your mom were here, were here, what do you think she would make of your great success as a comedian? Well, she was here. She was here for some of it, uh, and my mother. My mother was. Uh, she was quietly proud, but she didn't. She kept telling me to stop shouting on the television. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then, but uh, it's great. I, I have a brother, Philip, who uh, is a psychiatrist, and he was in the last party, and he was also on the radio a bit for being a psychiatrist. And my my sister tells this great story that she said, you know, she, she never told me very much. She said she never told me that how proud she was, but she. My sister told me that she overheard my mother being stopped at the shop one time by this woman who said to my mother Betty said oh Betty I heard your son on the radio and very proudly she said oh really which one (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to meeting Betty in the next life in the next life well I can say that well please say hello to her she she was a genuinely lovely lovely woman it was very sad she she got Alzheimer's towards the end Mm. of her life which was very, very debilitating, as you know. It's an awful disease, and she wasn't able to recognise our children, or the, my my two sons, you know, who were quite young at the time, and it's very distressing. But I remember, I think I told you this story as well. My mother had a really deep, deep faith, and my mother went to the nursing home, uh, and the first they ask you, you know, what your attitude is, you know, what religion you are, and what uh, what food you like, and all that, and then they asked an odd question, said, "What's your attitude to death?" And we were all in the room at the same time. They said, what's your attitude to death? And my mother genuinely said, I can't 
wait. I cannot wait. If you tell me to do next Wednesday, I'll go tomorrow, please. Maybe go tomorrow. And that was down to a deep faith. Mm -hmm. She genuinely thought she was going up to heaven. She genuinely, she'd certainly done her time. I promise you, she certainly had said her prayers and she'd done all, and she'd lived a very good life. And she brought up a a family of six. And she had her own tragedies. We had a, she had a child who died at the age of two on her uh, before I was born, you know. So everybody's had their tragedies and all that. And she'd been through a lot. And, you know, I, I, I re- it was still a nice photograph of my mother around the house. And you, you remember, I remember her very, very fondly. I think she'd, she'd give me a kick up the backside and tell me to stop being an atheist and go to mass. <laughs> I think she would. <laughs> she knows she's just trying to make God laugh. Thank, thanks. Maybe thanks you, you two are doing that. You two are Betty and, 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 and corporal form, aren't you? Is that maybe? <laughs> We're praying with Betty for you. Don't worry. And, and I know she's praying for us. And thank you so much. You've been a, a delight. A delight. So, Tim, just it's before, a joy to talk to you. Just before Tim, we finish. Just if you could just say briefly, what's next for you, Tim McGarry? Uh, uh, what's next for me? Uh, I'm delighted to say, uh, despite being 57, I've got plenty of work for the next while. Uh, hopefully, the Give My Head piece will be on tour in theatres next March, uh, back in the grand, the wonderfully refurbished Grand Opera House. Uh, and you know, I've, I've got to the age. I've got two children who are almost grown up and out of the house you know I can nearly get to the stage I can put my feet up and uh, have a glass of wine and uh, raise a glass to St Patrick well, we'll we'll toast you. We're we're not drinking till we're eighty, but we're gonna have a very large bottle. Of <laughs> <laughs> Tim, if we only had more time, but you have a higher calling to comedy, and so we have to leave it there. <laughs> so from Martina and from Martina, me, Elaine, it's God, an absolute joy. Thank you very God much. God bless you, uh, Tim, and Buen Camino. We thanks to our producers, Dr. Tim Campbell and Damien McKee, and we're on air again on July thirtieth. In the meantime, why not walk and talk with us? Contact. SimpatrickCenter.com, www.SimpatrickCenter.com for details and God bless you. God bless you.